If we don't change, we don't grow. If we don't grow, we aren't really living. Gail Sheehy. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. If you're new to this podcast, first of all, thank you so much for being here today. Our small team puts in a lot of effort to hopefully make this a resource for you on your journey to live a more intentional life, be a more inspiring leader, and make your highest contribution to the world. We release a new episode every other Tuesday, and I'm so excited about today's interview with Brigadier General Joseph Berger. General Berger is one of only a few generals in the Army JAG Corps. He's truly an incredible leader leader, and he does not hold back on this interview. He tells us about life growing up, some of his struggles, what has helped him succeed, what he thinks it takes to sustain excellence over a long period of time. We discuss his involvement in the Battle of Mogadishu. Many of you have probably seen Black Hawk Down, the movie that portrays that battle. We discuss servant leadership, his impressions of Admiral McRaven. He answers some questions from Army JAG attorneys, and I put him through at the end a lightning round of questions. I've tried so hard to cut this interview down, but this is the best that I can do because I want to make sure that you have access to all the great insights that he shares. If you want to see his full bio, go to my website, calwalters.me, and you'll be able to see his bio and the show notes for this interview. Thank you so much to all of you that have taken the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We are now officially one year into this podcast journey, and through your support, we continue to grow. We have been ranked in the top 35 of all management podcasts on Apple Podcasts. We receive over 1,000 downloads per month. And we have listeners in 19 different countries currently. Thank you for being on this journey with me to live a more intentional life and to be a better leader. And I feel like we're just getting started. Now, since General Berger and I are both in the Army, I just want to say that the views expressed on this episode are my own and his own and do not necessarily represent the official policy, position, or endorsement of the U.S. Army, DOD, or the U.S. government. And without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with Brigadier General Joseph Berger, the Commanding General of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. General Berger, welcome to the podcast. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here today. Cal, thanks. I am really excited about uh, our discussion today as a follow-on to watching you in the graduate course over the last year, listening to some of your other guests, although, boy, I'm uh, it's quite a crowd that you're pulling me into. I am flattered to be considered among those, uh, some of my own personal, uh, heroes might be too strong a word, but certainly leaders I've looked up to. Well, sir, it's, it's, it's really cool. We've spent the last year together, which has been awesome. I've learned so much from talking about leadership as we spend a good bit of this year talking about, and I'm excited for you to share your insights with this audience. As, I'm, as I was reflecting on this interview and preparing, I was mindful of the fact that a lot of people, or at least some people probably don't know about the JAG Corps. Maybe they watch Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men, uh, if that's even a thing people watch these days. But I would love, sir, if you could, just from your perspective and your experience and your position in the JAG Corps, can you tell us about the JAG Corps, what that is, and then tell us a little bit about your job at the top of the JAG Corps, towards the top of the JAG Corps. Absolutely, Cal. So I have to laugh, right? <laughs> uh, certainly the A Few Good Men reference, we may be dating ourselves, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> because, uh, as members of the JAG Corps, we do date ourselves, powerfully yeah. so. We mm -hmm. date ourselves back to 1775. And you'll hear 
firms will talk about, well, we're the largest this, or we're the biggest this, or we're the most powerful this, or the most successful this. We are the oldest practice of law in this country. And that is quite a heritage, quite a legacy, and to be honest, quite a burden in a positive sense. It's a mantle that we must carry forward. It's a privilege we have to do so. Certainly, organizations like the Department of Justice, the Social Security Administration, they're larger if you're just counting heads of attorneys, no question about that. But only the Army JAG Corps can date back to 1775 and the true birth of our nation. And so when I think about that and I think about what we do, and I'll get to that here a little bit more in a minute, uh, I think about how to accurately describe us. And I'll circle back to this at the end, but I really think we are the most consequential practice of law on earth. But I'm going to come back to that phrase. For our listeners who aren't familiar, I am fortunate to be the commanding general of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School here in Charlottesville, Virginia. We are privileged to be located on the grounds of the University of Virginia, which for those who know is Mr. Jefferson's other institute of higher learning. The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School is the world's premier legal training, education, and analysis institution for military law, preparing legal professionals to support the Army and the Joint Force to win decisively against any adversary in any operating environment now or in the future. In short, we are the lawyers for the Army and the Joint Force. Personally, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1992 and have been a judge advocate since 1998. I've had an amazing journey with phenomenal teammates and supporting incredible commanders. Most recently, I had the privilege of commanding the United States Army Legal Services Agency, home to all of our civil litigation, our appellate military justice practice, our intellectual property experts, and so much more. Prior to that, among other jobs, I was the senior legal advisor for the Army's Cyber Command. I worked on Capitol Hill in our legislative liaison office. I was the plans officer for the Army JAG Corps, dealing with force structure, manpower, budget, and I had the unique privilege of being the senior legal advisor for the Joint Special Operations Command. In my time as both a platoon leader and as a judge advocate, I've deployed numerous times, from Somalia to Kosovo, to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times each, filling a number of roles at a number of levels. Which brings me back to the discussion about the most consequential practice of law on earth. I am, as a general rule, loath to use absolutes. So there is certainly some hyperbole in that description. But I challenge you to find a practice of law that is more consequential. Yes, there are other practices of law that are as consequential, but more so, I remain doubtful. At the end of the day, what do we as judge advocates do? What does the Army JAG Corps do? We are tasked with providing principled counsel to the soldiers, commanders, and others we advise across the spectrum of legal disciplines around the globe 24-7. It's long been said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, an empire now gone has been replaced by a sun that never sets on the Army JAG Corps. Wow. Hearing you talk about all of those different positions is incredible, and I think it highlights one of my favorite things about the JAG Corps, which is the diversity of the JAG Corps within the JAG Corps. You have people practicing national security law who are literally downrange in combat, helping commanders decide 
whether to use the force of the United States against our enemies. You have JAGs who are in the courtrooms all across the world prosecuting felony cases and helping commanders navigate that. You have administrative law attorneys, tax law attorneys. So there's never a dull moment. And it's neat to hear you even just talk through the diversity of your experience. And I would love to maybe rewind the clock a little bit. Uh, you're a general now, which is incredible. And I, and I love, I can't wait to hear some of the insights of, of that experience. But I'd love to go back a little bit and hear about General Berger before he was General Berger and hear about your upbringing. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up for you, sir. Ah, to rewind the clock, a dream we all have. I'd probably lose a little bit of gray hair. Um, but again, I, I'm drawn to a movie analogy, and it's one that'll date us. Um, although the movie has aged well, because I've watched it with my, my two adult children. They're both uh, college age now. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? And he's there with the car, and he's trying to rewind the odometer to make it seem like the day hadn't happened. But the days have happened, uh, and that's not a bad thing, because we're all a product, for better or for worse, and ultimately, I think, for the better of all of those experiences, many of which we can talk about today. But life for me growing up, I was an army brat. And so I would describe it at best as perhaps fluid. My dad spent part of his time as a foreign area officer. And so in addition to uh, being a commander at various points in time and a battalion S3 and a battalion XO and all those traditional army jobs that have been timeless in our formation, he was a foreign area officer. And so we spent time in Tehran, we spent time in New Delhi, and then we spent time in Cairo. So it certainly had its highlights, and with those were some fantastically unique experiences. We moved wow. to Egypt, spring break of my junior year in high school, and so that turned out to be my fourth high school uh, by the end of uh, my junior year. But it was an incredible experience. Not so much the four high schools in four years, but the time spent in Cairo in the late 80s. Almost incomprehensible today, given how things have changed in the world. But at that point in time, just a fascinating place to live and to grow and to be a young adult. Were you a only child, sir? Did you have siblings? So I was not. I'm one of four. Okay. By the time we moved to Egypt, my oldest sister had left and was in college. And then I have two younger sisters. We're all four years apart. Okay. And so we're pretty spaced out. Um, but uh, yeah, one, one of four and the only boy in the lot. <laughs> Do you, when you think back about that childhood growing up and moving, are you able to recall any specific influences, some of the biggest people that influenced you during that childhood growing up? You know, Cal, I, I could go back to every location we lived and name somebody. And in some cases, thanks to the power of social media, I've either reconnected with those folks or in one case, and, and maybe we'll come to this story at Fort Campbell, uh, never really lost contact with that individual in terms of an influencer, a hero, somebody I looked up to, somebody I learned from, uh, a role model, whichever label, time, place we want to affix. But I'm hard pressed to affix sort of credit for who Joe Berger is or is not credit, yeah. blame, however we want to look at it, <laughs> yeah. but to a single name. For me, it's, it is that quintessential composite character that you find in a good fiction story. Hmm. You read it, right? The introduction at the beginning tells you none of these characters are true, right? Any, uh, any uh, similarities are purely incidental. Well, hmm. eh, that's never completely true. As a military brat, as I discussed, that moving around, it was new teachers every year. It was new friends. It was new neighbors. 
I certainly have to give my parents some of the credit. Although I imagine like most adults at a certain point in time in your life, you step back and you think, yeah, and I probably got to give my parents some of the blame too. Um, it works both ways and that's okay. That's as your relationship changes with your parents uh, over a lifetime, those things come to be. Today, I would tell you, and for the last 20 plus years, it would be the influence of my incredible wife. And with each passing day, uh, the growing influence of my two adult children. So I have two college-age children, a son and a daughter, both incredibly talented, intellectually curious, wonderful human beings. And many days I simply look at them and hope that I can be what my children are. And so I think as a parent, I like to chalk that up as success. Yeah. Uh, but it's a high standard. What, what would you say you've learned the most from your children? That's really neat to hear you say so, that. I have watched in, in both of them, their ability to be empathetic. It took me a long time to, I think, fully understand empathy as a leadership trait. Yeah. They get it as just a foundational human characteristic. I watch them and how they interact with others, how they react to the news, how they deal with the world around them. And if I can be half as empathetic as they are on a given day, I think I'm doing well. That's really cool. It, it makes me think literally yesterday, we've been talking to our daughter about uh, the fruits of the spirit. So, you know, it's kind of a religious background, but we found that that's a good way to teach her, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, self-control. And it's so funny. We tend in the mornings to get really busy and we're like, Hey, we got to go. We got to go. And, and the last couple of days, our daughter, Georgia has been like, daddy, patience, patience, patience. And then even the other day she was telling my wife, mommy, you need some peace. You need some peace. So it's so funny. Even my daughter at six, how they can be such great teachers to us uh, as we go to her. But I also think that requires an ability to allow yourself to be taught by everyone, including people that are younger than you. There is a critical humility that comes with that, Cal. Now, there's a, that great poem by Robert Frost that talks about when I was younger, my teachers were the old, but now that I'm 50 and now that I'm past 50, <laughs> I, I look to the young. And it is a fundamental trait of leadership for a number of reasons. You've got to realize you don't have all the answers. You may have positional authority. You may be responsible for prioritization and resourcing. But you've got great talent on any team that probably has a better idea about how to do something than you do as the leader. And the challenge is, are you humble enough to recognize that? And are you smart enough then to harness it? Hmm. And that, I think, becomes a challenge for many of us, depending on what the issue is and, and what the operational environment looks like. Uh, but I really think that, that that trait, humility, coupled with the patience, coupled with the peace, um, knowing yourself, being comfortable enough with yourself, uh, all things that make us better, both as human beings, but certainly as leaders too. How, how do you think, as you reflect back on you growing up and you now, how do you think you're most different so I would like to hope that uh, Joe Berger at 50 is a more patient human being. I'd like to think that Joe Berger at 50 has a little better perspective and realizes you can't fix everything. Choose wisely. Not that you shouldn't try to, to fix as many things as you can in, in the big proverbial sense, but I definitely think that 
that Joe Berger at this point in his life, I mean, my kids will chuckle at this, right? Is a little more patient. Um, not that I'm impatient with them, but I'm impatient with computers. I'm impatient with inanimate objects. And so it's always a source of humor in our household. A couple months ago, my wife had sent the kids a note. She said, uh, Dad got a new iPad, brace for impact. Brace. Right? So the thought of me migrating all of my apps and all of my passwords and all those things, uh, which led to a funny dialogue between the three of them at my expense, which is all good, great humor and oh, very great. appropriate. Certainly at this point in my life, uh, I have a different perspective. I've had the privilege and the benefit of traveling the world over. I have been truly fortunate to the extent that I have been able to see outside of the bubble in which we, we live sometime. And that has given me a new perspective. I saw some of that as a kid growing up, certainly given the places where my father was assigned and, and that was a helpful perspective. But then to put that into relative perspective as to how fortunate I am and help my kids try to understand how fortunate they are that when this crisis, the most recent crisis hit and the pandemic hit, they knew they had a safe place to go home to. They knew that there were the not so little things like computer bandwidth to be able to continue their studies, uh, that they'd each have dedicated workspace. Now, granted, they would tell you they were in a little bit of each other's ways, but uh, little things like that that aren't so little when you don't have them. And so I would hope that Joe Berger at this point in his life has a tremendous fundamental appreciation of that, coupled with the realization that everybody has something going on in their life. You just probably don't know what it is. Hmm. And so be careful when you're quick to judge. I don't think people wake up on any given day wanting to go to work and be a bad employee. But I think people wake up and have bad days. And your challenge as a leader is, how do you get them past that bad day? How do you understand what's going on without crying too much sometimes and help them get through that and past that and not penalize them when you don't have to, but give them the room, give them the room to adjust. And so I would hope that Joe Berger at 50 is far better at that and far less rash uh, than Joe Berger at 20 or 30 or even 40. I appreciate you sharing that, sir. And, and I, th I wanted to ask you too, it's maybe related to that. Uh, I think it's easy to see someone who's a general officer, uh, has been as successful as you have, and, and think uh, he's hit home runs his whole life. He's never made any mistakes. When you reflect back, it, it could be growing up, it could be time in your Army career. What moments of adversity and failures stand out to you most that have shaped you the most? That's tough, right? We A lot of times as leaders... We want to show our vulnerabilities. We want to share who we really are. But I think we struggle sometimes to draw those lines. But I think it is important for people to see us as humans, yeah. just like them, yeah. with all our failings, with all our shortcomings, and with all our successes, right? I don't think I've ever met a single human being who hit a home run proverbially or literally every time they stepped up to bat, right? There, there is no entry in the Hall of Fame for that. So we all swing. We all miss. You pick your sports analogy. You pick your analogy. But for me, right, so I'll go back to four high schools in four years. That was really hard. Every year, 
right? Trying to struggle to reestablish yourself, perhaps yeah. struggling to identify yourself, to rebrand yourself, if you will. Making the cuts for sports teams or activities where coaches and leaders didn't know you, but knew everybody else who was trying out since they were in middle school. Yeah. Or, or else. Later in life, my parents went through a divorce after 45 years of marriage. I was a war college student at the time, pretty senior by that point in time. And I have three sisters, as we talked about. And that divorce really ripped at our family. Even that late in life, to this day, I struggle with my relationship with my parents and with some of my siblings um, as we have worked to, to try to figure out how we can be in each other's lives where necessary, certainly, where appropriate, and where we want to be. But there's still a lot of scar tissue from that. And, and those are some of the things, right? I think we can all look around. Um, and most of us know somebody, certainly statistically, most of us know somebody who's been through that. And so as a child, even as an adult child, being on the receiving end of that is taxing. Uh, and it is, it is a struggle. As we talked about earlier with the example of both of my kids, I think I really struggled as a young leader to understand what empathy was. Um, and I know that I got some things wrong at the expense of young soldiers, but I also know that it's something that I'm acutely aware of and that I struggle to get right and I struggle to get better at all the time. You know, I'm 5'8", I'm 150 pounds. Uh, this is not a body that was built for the ACFT, uh, the Army's <laughs> new PT test. Um, <laughs> I've never lifts. been the biggest, you know, right? I've never been the biggest. I've never been the fastest. I've never been the strongest. But like the old saying goes, uh, when the lion wakes up on the savanna, you don't have to be the fastest zebra. Just don't be the slowest. So like PT, there are a number of things that I've just had to work at constantly. It'd be disingenuous for me to say that luck hasn't played a part. It'd be disingenuous for me to say that I didn't have a great foundation to start with. And that gave me a position of relative advantage going into college, coming out of college, all those things. But it is hard work. It's hard work the entire duration. It's hard work all the way. And it, it continues to be hard work as long as you want to be somebody who continues to grow rather than die. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you so much for sharing that. It makes me, just hearing you talk through that, uh, one makes may think of what Patrick Lencioni said, one of my favorite leadership teachers, as he was talking about leadership through COVID. And one of his top points was be exceedingly human right now. Be exceedingly human. And, and I think that just hearing you talk through that for me just allows me to identify with you as a leader and maybe some of our listeners in a way that uh, and you, sometimes you may think vulnerability is a weakness. I think maybe a lot of us have thought that in the past, but there's something about vulnerability when it's done correctly. I'm not talking about vulnerability with no boundaries, but vulnerability with boundaries that does, uh, I think, allow us to see a leader as human, uh, to be inspired by that, to relate to that. My parents divorced when I was about four or five years old. So even just hearing you share that uh, is, you know, it just, it just says, you know what? General Berger has been through some stuff. He can even relate to something I've been through. So I, I just want to tell you, sir, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and I think that's a powerful uh, leadership trait. The next question I have for you is a little different. I'm I want to ask you to, to, not, to not be modest, sir, as you reflect back uh, on your career. I'm curious if you do a little autopsy on your success, 
what would you offer to us are some things that you think have really allowed you to experience the success that you've, you've experienced over the course of your career? So I'll go back a little bit to what I described perhaps as uh, that unfair advantage um, or certainly an advantage having grown up traveling. I think the combination of reading and traveling, they've mm. given me great perspective on the world. Yeah. Not only on my own good fortune, um, but, but a perspective of the challenges we face, whether that's as a nation, whether that's as a global community, whether that's as soldiers, whether that's as lawyers, there is perspective that comes from that. And so I think those are those two things coming together, the confluence of those two activities, really, I think, have helped me a lot in success. I married well. I married a smart, funny, talented woman. She is my biggest fan and will be a cheerleader all day long, right up until the point where she needs to be my sharpest critic. And the only disconnect that we really have is I'm a morning person and she is so only reluctantly. Um, so, you know, as, as a word of advice, I would say choose your circle wisely. That goes not only for, for whomever you choose to spend your life with if you so choose, but that goes for friends. That goes for in whom do you place your confidence and in whom do you place your trust? Uh, and do you reciprocate with the same level of shared trust and shared confidence? And where appropriate, preserving the bubble. Right? People need to have a safe place. We all do. One of the challenges of becoming more senior over time is it's a grade pyramid. It's how we talk about it all the time across the Army, which means there's a whole bunch of people at the bottom. So for us as officers, lieutenants, and captains, and there's very few at the top. So whether that's as a colonel or whether that's as a general. And so it is by definition and design and structure, it becomes more isolating over time. And so the need to have that safe space, the need to have invested wisely in relationships. And again, that might be a spousal relationship. That might be a friend. That might be a stronger relationship with a sibling. My youngest sister and I, we can pick up the phone anytime and have a great conversation. And it's a wonderful relationship. We're in very different places in our lives. She has two small school-aged children at home. Mine are both done, out of the house. Well, they're back now thanks to COVID. <laughs> but uh, as college students, um, we were at least enjoying somewhat of an empty nest. But there is a confidence and a trust and a bond that we can share anything. And certainly the same goes, goes for my spouse without, without hesitation. So I would say if you were to ask the question, right, what are the things I've done to be successful? We can talk about habits and routines and, and much more uh, practical type practices a little later. But the big picture things, a lot of it is choosing with whom you share wisely. Um, and then part of it is reading and traveling uh, that for me. The other thing I would tell you is if you just define success as mission accomplishment and bringing all your soldiers home safely, then for me, successful combat leadership as a young lieutenant was a life-changing event. Success in combat at the tactical level is incredibly different than grand level strategy uh, and success at that level, but that's a discussion for another day and a whole nother series of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> But when I came back after that deployment, I really felt like I could do anything. Hmm. And it truly pushed me to find new ways to challenge myself. 
because I came back and we fell back into our garrison mission and the garrison roles where we were not deployed and things got kind of mundane. And not to say that there weren't a lot of great things I could still do then as a platoon leader, but I wasn't challenged as much. And that's what drove me to become a judge advocate. That's what drove me to apply for the funded legal education program. It was that desire to stay in the organization. I was quickly growing to love that being the army, but a need to find new ways to challenge myself. Uh, and that's how I ended up here. So if you were to say, what's another thing uh, that really helped me succeed? It was that transformational experience that gave me the impetus to say, hey, you need to be challenged. You need to push yourself. You need to find different things to do and you're not finding it here. So you've got to go be planted somewhere else so you can bloom there. That's great. Yeah. So I hear just to kind of summarize, I hear you saying reading and travel is something that gave you perspective, which I can absolutely relate to that, especially travel. I feel like if I could give one thing to my daughter, I hope to give her perspective through travel. I remember traveling for me allowed me to see poverty at a level I'd never seen before. And, and there's something about having, you can't unsee what you've seen and it just opens your aperture to a, a world that's out there. It allows you to process information in a way that I, I couldn't do without having seen some of those things. And I think reading, what a, what a cool way to have these mentors who have, I mean, you could read a biography or an autobiography about John Adams, for example. And then you, you get to learn all about John Adams or uh, any number of books where leaders are sharing their experience. And then I also hear you talking about the importance of environment and the people that you surround yourself with and intentionally surrounding yourself with people who raise you up, who challenge you, who, who are your cheerleaders, but also people that are willing to tell you in love the things that you wouldn't otherwise know about yourself, fill in some of those blind spots. Um, and then you talked about, sir, about this deployment. Uh, are you talking about, is this Somalia that you're talking about or is this a different this deployment? Is. Okay. And so in my understanding, sir, is that you were in Somalia, was it in 93 around the time of the movie Black Hawk Down? I was. So I got to Somalia, I arrived in Somalia in the late summer of okay. 93 and was there through December. And so my platoon was involved in, in the events surrounding the movie, the book, and then the movie and has become known as the Battle of Mogadishu. Wow. I know a lot of us have seen that movie. I would just be curious to get your perspective. Uh, what did you learn? Uh, what did you take away from being there when, when that happened? Uh, I, I would just be curious if you're comfortable hearing what that was like for you. No, absolutely. It's a great, it's a great conversation to have, and it's an important conversation to have. You know, it's funny, at a very tactical level, you learn how much you don't know what's going on around you. Right? I, full confession. It wasn't until the series started coming out in the Philadelphia Inquirer that Mark Bowden then as a reporter for the Inquirer ultimately uh, went on to publish the book. Uh, but he published it originally, what became the book, as a series of articles. I mean, it wasn't until I read many of those that I knew the complete story of what had happened that day, something that I was intimately involved in. Wow. Because when you're on the radio, yeah. you're listening to your net, Absolutely. you're listening to one up, and you're yeah. listening to left and right. Right. <laughs> so you know what's happening in your bubble, but to have that whole picture. And so that's important for a lot of reasons, because while it's a very challenging, realistic situation on the ground, it happens in everything we do. Right. I know sitting here um, that I know a lot about a lot more about what's going on in the JAG Corps 
than most of the majors sitting in the grad course. And I should. But what's my obligation to share that information, right? To filter out what's appropriate and not filter in a pejorative sense to hide, but there's only so much information they need at this point in time. So how do I figure out as a leader what needs to go down and be shared? How do I as a leader figure out what needs to be pushed up? How as a leader do I figure out what I need to share with my counterparts and my peers? Where are those lines? And so for me, it's a it's a great visual that I can go back to. When I ask myself the question, who else needs to know? I can put myself, right, sitting in that Humvee with two Singars radios, listening to the, the radio traffic, trying to direct vehicles to respond to incoming fire, um, and figure out who needs to know what, when. Hmm. That's a challenge, but it continues. I would tell you the other thing you learn is um, you learn how to be at peace with where you are in life hmm. because whether whether yours is a faith-based approach to your life on earth or whether yours is a more agnostic approach to your life on earth and for our listeners it, it doesn't matter which it is you've got to be at peace at where you are as a human being because you don't know you just don't know when when your number's up and so I'm not sure I ever was, but I think in hindsight, I could have been, I don't know, but it reminds you that life is finite uh, yeah. because nobody thought that that morning, that that night would end up that way. Um, and that it would go through the night well into the next morning, but in hindsight it did. And a number of soldiers lost their lives. A number of soldiers lives were irrevocably changed. Um, and that's both for U.S. soldiers, that's for the forces against whom we were fighting, and that's for families on both sides. And so our world can change in a minute, and certainly in our profession, our world can truly change in a minute. And in fact, we've signed on and accepted a risk that we know that and are willing to be part of that. And there is a humility and a humbleness that comes with that fact set. And I think you've got to learn to be okay with that. I'm still not exactly sure what that looks like in terms of being okay with that, uh, but it's, it's a reality. I also learned that young soldiers have just an incredible, tireless sense of humor. You can be in the absolute worst situation. You can have rounds impacting around you in direct fire. You can have incoming direct fire bouncing off your vehicle. And the soldier is still going to find a way to find humor. It might be dark. It might be macabre. But it will be humor in that situation and in that moment. And there is a power of humor that is like none other on this earth. Hmm. You know, and I always tell people, hey, keep your sense of humor. Because I think that is critical. But at a time like that, to watch young soldiers, and I got it. I was a relatively young soldier then, too. But I had 18-year-old soldiers. I had, I had kids in my platoon who, when we got on the plane to fly to Somalia, had never been on an aircraft before in their life. And what I didn't realize is we were sitting there at the airport at the, on the tarmac uh, at the nose dock waiting, waiting to load the plane. I thought these two kids were panicked about what was on the other side of the ocean. It wasn't. They're like, sir, I got the stuff on the ground. We're trained for that. I've never been on an airplane before. And nobody trains you how to do that. So 
you got to find the time to laugh. You got to find the place to laugh. But but that is perhaps uh, mm. one of the best takeaways. It's just a just a reminder that you can find humor in all things. Might not be necessarily the most appropriate humor, uh, but you can find humor in all things. It might be dark, but you'll get past it. I love that, and I think that with COVID. I've seen a lot of what you just described, I think there are a lot of lessons or leadership points that I've seen during COVID. One is this acknowledgement of our own mortality. I mean, I think none of us saw this coming and the fact that so many things are out of our control. I've also heard you really use that exact same line as we've navigated COVID as an army, as a JAG Corps to never lose your sense of humor. Uh, and, I, and I think that has been such a great reminder that even in the difficulty, as a leader, you can make that a priority and that can help people sustain themselves through, through challenge. Uh, so I just appreciate that. Also, I can't help as, you, as I hear you talk about that to think about my own experience as a lieutenant, infantry lieutenant with my new soldiers. One of the biggest things that I took away from that is just how incredible these young men and women are that are willing to, at 18 years old, sign up to a fate that is uncertain. Uh, we recently, Memorial Day recently passed uh, several weeks ago as we're recording this, but I am always amazed. And every, every time someone asks me about my experience in the army or thank you for your service, or, you know, I'm so impressed by what you've done. I always just think back at those young men and women who were willing to do that, uh, willing to do anything, give their lives to an uncertain, certain future. So I just, uh, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge those, those incredible men and women who even to this day are are signing on the dotted line and are willing to do whatever it takes for uh, this country. Whether they believe with all the policies of uh, this country or not, they are still willing to, to serve. And what a privilege it is to, in even a small way, lead them. So, well, sir, thanks for sharing uh, that experience. I think that's one that we've all, or many of us have seen on a movie, <laughs> but didn't live. Uh, so I just, I'm so thankful that you're willing to share that. I want to ask you, because you've also been around to some incredible leaders. Uh, you've been around people in the special operations world who lead at the highest levels and have sustained excellence over a long period of time. These aren't people that just have one success and then they move on. These are people that are able to sustain excellence over decades. And I'm just curious, sir, as you reflect, as you reflect and you think about these different leaders or highly high-performing people, what are some of the commonalities that you've seen between people who are able to sustain excellence over a significant period of time? So I think first and foremost, high-performing individuals aren't worried about themselves. Right? I had one boss describe himself as a three-star action officer. <laughs> he made himself available to his entire staff to help solve the organizational problems. In the same way, the front office is there to support the folks down on the line and not the other way around. He was there to support his staff. And it was amazingly powerful. Sometimes it came across as, you know, a little jokingly, hey, leverage me, I'm your three-star action officer. But he was absolutely sincere about it. Yeah. Steer him towards the problem. Hey, sir, here's what we need you to do to help move this. Uh, it wasn't about him. Yeah. It really wasn't. Uh, and that, I think, first and foremost, for those who are able to maintain that level of success over time, it's never about them. It's about what can they do for something bigger than them. Maybe it's about an individual. We'll probably talk about that later on, but it's also about the organization. I'll go back to reading again, right? And this is probably going to be a constant theme. Um, it certainly is every time we talk, but high-performing individuals read, like right? They do. 
We're responsible for human beings, and we owe it to them not to repeat mistakes at their expense. We can mitigate risk by reading history and by educating ourselves to be able to solve new twists on old problems. It's not always easy to find time, so you have to make it. Right? Sometimes I tell myself, hey, I'm only going to get 10 minutes in tonight. But you make the most of that 10 minutes. There are those nights you don't get any in, and, and that's a reality, but it's got to be part of your regimen. It's really got to be a discipline. I think high performing individuals realize that making a difference has a price, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, I think in this case, it comes in term, it comes at the price of the proverbial work life balance a phrase that I think is a misnomer anyway for the reason, very reason we'll discuss here. But I think those who are successful over time know when to prioritize what. There are times when work has to be prioritized. But there are times when family has to be prioritized. And people will talk about work-life balance and say, oh, but if I only had you know, a little more time off to give to my family or what have you. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, so you managed to get home at six o'clock every night. How much energy do you have left for your family? You may be giving them the same number of hours, but are you really giving them the same you, the same value, the same quality? So I think high-performing individuals realize that it's not easy math. There are times where it hurts because the organization needs it more than your loved ones. And there are times where your loved ones needs it more than the organization. And they have to be humble enough to know that the organization will continue without them and that none of us is irreplaceable. And when that time come, that comes and that requirement comes, that's when you focus on family. I think that's something we don't talk enough about, um, or I think we don't acknowledge that elephant in the room enough, if you will. So I think that's one of those. And the last thing I would say, I think those who are successful, and that's in uniform, that's out of uniform, they're beginners. They try new things. They take risks. They don't dwell on failure, but they learn from it. They redo and they improve. But somebody told me once, if you can be anything, be a beginner. And you think about the power of that phrase. And I love it. I fell I in that. love with the phrase. Yeah. Because it is such great guidance to say, get outside your comfort zone. Do something new. Right? And we can think about it in terms of a hobby learning a language or something else, but maybe it's just trying a new idea. So I think those four things, I think reading, it is fundamental to who we are as, as humans, as leaders, um, as, as citizens, not worrying about ourselves, realizing that service at the highest levels does come with a price, and then being willing to take those risks. And if you wanna use the phrase, be a beginner, for me, that's a great way to think about it, but I think it goes to the fundamental piece of being willing to take a risk, maybe even at the expense of looking a little foolish. I love that. I just, I love that idea of being willing to be a beginner. It makes me think of another person I had the pleasure of interviewing who was a cancer survivor and he came out of having survived cancer, stage four cancer. And that was one of the biggest lessons he learned from that experience of, of really having to confront death uh, was I need to get out of my comfort zone more. I, he was actually a fighter pilot, which is crazy to think that a fighter pilot needs to get out of their comfort zone more. But he was, he knew it. He said, for me, that was completely comfortable. 
for me, for me, Cal, that would not have been comfortable to go fly planes. But for him, he just, yeah, yeah. But he just knew that for him personally, doing an honest assessment of where he was, that in order for him to grow, he had to get out of his comfort zone. And I just, I love that idea because it's one, I think we have to take a moment to reflect on our own comfort zone because what's comfortable for me is probably different from you and vice versa. We're all different. So figuring out what is tough, how can I be a beginner? I, I, I just love that mindset because I think if you have that your whole life, you're never going to stop growing. I, I love even uh, one of my favorite authors, John Maxwell, uh, is talking even now at 70 plus years old about you know what book he's going to write next or what he can do next or where he's going to travel to next. And it's just that mentality. I feel like if you have that, you're never going to stop growing. You're never going to get old. You're never going to get complacent. So I appreciate that. I want to follow up, sir, on what something you said though about work-life balance and make sure I understand what you're saying there. Tell us about your your view on work-life balance or or how how do you prefer to think about that? Because I think a lot of us struggle with that, especially in demanding careers. No no one wants to get to the end of their life and say, man, I, I work too much or I wish I'd spent more time with family. So I think we're all trying to figure out how to navigate that while also making a difference or, or contributing or having a successful career. So I'm just curious how you found to navigate that in your own life. So I like talking about work-life integration. I like okay. the phrase integration. I don't like thinking about, right, especially as lawyers, I hate thinking about scales yeah. when it comes to this equation because we're looking for that perfect balance. You're never going to get it and that's okay. But I think if you think in terms of integration and then I think the other piece is accepting that work is Part of who you are. It defines you, right? And so I think if you think about that, the two become really the, the who you are outside of work, as it were, and the who you are at work really can become more one in the same. That's not to say that you're inappropriately blurring lines. It is to say a realization that, right, why does Joe Berger like to spend his off time reading books about history, about the law, about leadership, because that's who I am as a person. It's also who I am as a professional, but all those things are one and the same. And I think our, our natural inclination is to try to draw a clean line between the two. And I don't think that's as much a generational thing as some would purport to say it is. I think it's just a fundamental way of how we think about it. Fundamentally, who I am is a guy who's been in uniform almost 30 years, right? And who has had an ID card for 50 years, 50 years. Okay. Granted, I didn't get my first one until I was 10. So 40, but right. But I was a, I, yeah. I was a family member, have been my entire life up until the point in time that I became a soldier. And so this is me. And so my work is my life and that's okay. That's not to say that it's all in your life, right? So I love nothing more than spending time with my family. Ah, granted, two college-age kids at home probably want to spend less time with their parents. I'm not offended. That's where I was in life, too. Um, and it's good to have a hobby, right? I love, right? I'm a third-rate amateur photographer. Oh, and my wow. wife jokes. I didn't know that. So, yeah, see, you learn something <laughs> new every day. Uh, my wife jokes that uh, I chose that hobby because it uh, allows me to see the world exactly in a controlled manner in which I would like to see it. Um, <laughs> She also describes me occasionally as the uh, letter that comes before A when we talk about personalities. So <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions there. But, right, you need something that makes you whole. 
But a big piece of that pie is what you do every day when you get up and, and walk out of the house. Uh, because we take our work home with us, but we bring our personal life to work with us too. It, do, it does go both ways. And so I think it's really about an acceptance of the fact that the two are far more integrated than perhaps we want to admit. And I don't know that it's a pejorative thing that we don't admit it. I think it's just an intellectual thing that we haven't spent the time to think about. And it took me years to sort of come to that realization. And so uh, I don't fault others if they're not there. And I don't fault others, certainly if they disagree, that's absolutely their prerogative to do so. Uh, but I do think it's much more about the integration than it is a distinction and some sort of weighing on the scales. Because at some point in time, the family is going to have a fatter thumb on the scale or the boss is going to have a fatter thumb on the scale. And that just is the way it is. Yeah. Now, that's really a, a helpful way to think about it. And I think to your point about how it's this, for me, it's this probably going to be a lifelong journey of trying to figure this out because it's, and I like one of my favorite uh, pastors talks about there are problems that we have to solve. And then in life, there are sometimes there are just tensions we have to manage. And this, to me, this is one of those, we're never going to just solve this problem, right? We're never just going to say, okay, I've got it completely figured out when it comes to family and work. But this is a tension that I can probably figure out how to manage throughout life in a more effective way. And I, I think that's a really enlightening way to think about work-life integration versus work-life balance. I, I go back, to, I know you and I have talked about General Retired Caslin, and I asked him a question at the end of an interview with him, and he talked about, I think his takeaway was, be present. Wherever your feet are, be there. So if you're at home and you're with your family right there at the dinner table, try to be present. If you're at work and you're with your, your team, be where you are in that moment. And I think that is one of the Biggest challenges for me personally, I'll just acknowledge it, uh, because I can be somewhere physically, but my mind can be at work. And, and I've just found that why, I, if I'm at home and I'm spending time with my family, then I should be there in that moment. So I, I think this is for me a constant thing that I will be working on, trying to improve on, trying to get better at. But I appreciate that, sir. I think that's a really helpful and enlightening way to think about the way we manage that tension of work and life. Sir, I want to ask you, so we have talked in our leadership discussions, we've talked about servant leadership. And I love this concept of servant leadership. In fact, it makes me think, uh, I was listening to another Patrick Lencioni discussion, and he said, I wish we didn't even have the term servant leadership because it implies there's some other form of leadership out there. And I think that's such a great point. But I'd, I'd be curious, sir, I know that the JAG Corps has made servant leadership one of the four pillars of what we do. What does servant leadership mean to you, sir? You know, so it's funny uh, that you bring that up uh, with that lead-in about why is there, is there even any other kind of leadership? Because personally, I, I find the phrase redundant. I really do. For me, it's a lot like the phrase frank honesty. Either you're being honest with me <laughs> or you're not. Yeah. Because once you start to soft pedal something, once you start to soft pedal the truth, you're not being fully honest. And so when I think about servant leadership, I really look at that phrase and think it is redundant. Now, that's not a bad thing. And I'll come back to that in a second. But if you're leading, by definition, you are leading other human beings. And leaders who are all about themselves and are not focused on their people are simply not leaders. They might be the boss 
and they might have positional authority, but they're not a leader. That positional authority can be a powerful thing. And they may have legal authority they can leverage, right? Like a commander certainly in uniform does. But when it comes to true leadership, when it comes to those things we view as fundamental to leadership, providing purpose, motivation, and direction, you need moral authority to do that too. That can't just come with positional authority. Your people need to believe that you care about them. So I go back to why I think it's not a bad thing that the phrase is servant leadership, even though I think it's redundant. Because it's a reminder of the role we have to play and that we should play and that we should want to play. Right? The army is littered with phrases like mission first, soldier all, soldiers always. And someone asked me uh, recently for a copy of my written leadership philosophy and I looked at him and I said, it's really simple. Take care of the people. They will take care of everything else, hmm. period. You don't need three paragraphs to explain that. That's what you need to do. Now, how do you take care of people? There are a thousand different ways. And every person is unique and different. And as we discussed earlier, everybody's got something going on. Sometimes you need to figure out what that is. But if you take care of people, they will take care of everything else. And so I find the concept of servant leadership, again, sounds a little flippant, but it's redundant. Frank honesty. <laughs> Either you're a leader or you're not. Either you're honest or you're not. Uh, but again, it, it serves as a powerful reminder as to why we want to be in an organization that allows us the privilege of being a leader. When you think about servant leadership, are there any examples of that that really come to mind of, of people that you've seen that, that do that well? Or maybe, I guess, to, to the earlier point, just people that lead well in general? Yeah, great, great leaders. Wow. Uh, I've been incredibly lucky to advise a number, right? And I can go right down that client list. Great, great leaders like Admiral Bill McRaven, General Tony Thomas, oh, wow. Joe Votel, Lieutenant General Kevin Mangum, Lieutenant General Bob Ashley. But those are the easy ones, right? Because wow. they've all been my clients. They've all been my boss. Incredible leaders, but relatively easy to identify. I think our challenge is finding the servant leader among us hmm. uh, in our closer circle, in our smaller formations. And for that, I would tell you that I think the best example right now is my command chief warrant officer. It's hmm. Tammy Richmond, hmm. right? She is both a formal leader here at the center and school, but she is a mentor across the entire JAG Corps. I mean, she really is amazing. Pre-pandemic, four or five times a day, she'd have someone in her office, coaching, training, mentoring, and not the same person. I mean, she does the thing that people want the most, and that is a leader who will invest their time in them. Because the single greatest resource any of us have, the one thing you can't get any more of is time. And she yeah. is that leader who invests her time in the team. As I've traveled across the, the JAG Corps on our inspections, our Article 6 visits, I'll ask the legal administrator wherever I am, who's your mentor? almost to a man or woman. Well, it's Tammy Richmond. I come wow. back and I think, how can one person, right, <laughs> be mentoring so many people? And then you watch her and you realize how it happened. And so in that colloquial sense, she is the quintessential servant leader. 
She's not focused on herself. She's a rising tide that lifts all boats. And she puts subordinates, not just those under her positional authority, first. She invests in her people. And that, for me, is about the best example. And the beauty of it is, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I can walk out into the hallway and I can see it in action and I can be reminded. Uh, and I think much like the term servant leadership reminds us of the type of leaders we should be, she is the embodiment of that to remind me and everyone else who interacts with her what a servant leader can look like. That's so cool. Uh, and I've had the privilege of, of working with uh, Chief Richmond as well. And I just echo that. In fact, just hearing you talk through that, it, all of that makes sense to me. Uh, she's even found a way to mentor me and lead me uh, from a distance and it just shows her ability to serve. Another thing I've noticed about Chief Richmond, and I'd be curious, sir, to hear your, what your, your thoughts are on this, is she seems to, again, be reading a lot, thinking a lot. She spends so much time thinking about leadership. Have you found that to be another commonality with great leaders that they just, they spend a lot of time thinking and reading about leadership? They do. You know, folks will ask me, a question I'll regularly get is, what's on your reading list? And I talk about dividing my reading list into a couple different buckets. Certainly there is the profession as soldiers bucket, right? And whether that's military history, whether that is biographies of great military leaders, your military, your, your professional soldier bucket. And it's a lot more than that, but that's a great way to describe it. Now, some of that, a lot of that is certainly about leadership because that's what we are as an organization. Mm. And the next bucket is about the legal profession. And that, again, can be about leaders, right? Without precedent, about John Marshall um, and the things that he did as a young officer working for Von Steuben all the way up to his time as the chief justice. And so there's that bucket. And then the last bucket is really distinctively about leadership. Because like I said, I'm not a big fiction reader necessarily. Um, I read occasionally, um, and I've usually screened it by two or three other folks to make sure it's a worthwhile read. Uh, but the last bucket is tends to be books about leadership. Now, it may be business leadership. It might be academic works about leadership, wherever it falls on that spectrum. But I do deliberately read about that, and that is something that I have seen. But to your, to your broader point is, they talk about it. They talk about what they're reading about. And I know for me, if I, read, if I just sit and read a book, close the book, put it back on the shelf, my retention of what was in that book weeks, days, weeks, months later falls off precipitously. If I have a conversation about that book with somebody, right, that's the value of a, of a book club if, if you can be in one, if your schedule permits. But even if I just start to incorporate something from that book in a conversation the next day, in a meeting, in an email, in a, in a pitch I'm giving. Once I start to do that, you pause to think about more about what you've read and you also retain it better. So for me, it is not just the reading act, but it's the discussion that follows with it that I find is really critical. I think that also probably reinforces for the people on your team that you're constantly learning, that, that even you are trying to learn. And I think that is a, we've talked about it before, great organizations are learning organizations. They're always trying to improve, looking for ways that they can get smarter. Sir, I wanted to ask you about Admiral McCraven since you brought him up. Uh, I think a lot of people maybe know him from his book, Make Your Bed, his viral speech at the University of Texas. In fact, I saw that he also just gave the commencement speech 
I don't know if it was with the undergrad of MIT, but at uh, one of the graduations at MIT, what stands out when you reflect back on Admiral McRaven? What's, what stands out to you about him? So I will tell you as a leader, two things. One, at the organizational day picnic, he spent probably a good 35 minutes talking to my then middle-aged, brand newly middle-aged school son about engineering. He took the time and had a conversation with a kid. Here's a man who's right, I've heard a a three-star recently describe uh, her life as metered in minutes and controlled in minutes. And here's a guy who took the time to just have a conversation with a kid. And that sticks out in my mind as the amalgamation of everything about him. But what I will tell you I found most rewarding about working for him was I never had to have, I was never concerned about where the boss's moral compass was. We might differ on risk assessment. We might differ on where we thought something was vis-a-vis an ethical line. But we always agreed what side was the right side and what side was the wrong side. I never had to worry. I never, I never had to go in, and I can't say this about every senior leader I've ever advised, but I never had to go in and start at zero. And that is powerful because not only do you solve problems more quickly, but you get to have a greater discussion about other solutions and the viability of other courses of action. You get to spend more time on the underlying issue rather than the groundwork that you'd need to get to the issue. And so for me with him, it was the absolutely unquestionable moral compass. The man never asked somebody to do something he wouldn't do, including going out on an objective as a three-star. But he also knew the time and the place to have a discussion about risk, to look at me and say, Joe, I got it, but I'm paid to assume risk. Appreciate the counsel. I'm going to execute. Got it, sir. Right. And, and I never had to worry that he was doing something wrong. He was just willing to assume a certain degree of risk. And that's what he was paid to do. And it was amazing to watch. That's encouraging to hear, you know, that as you get so up close to a leader like that, that uh, you leave even more impressed than you probably otherwise were before you started working for him. I think it just shows how much character matters. Sir, I want to ask you a few questions that I actually have from the field, or, and, and they've, you've actually led them before, and uh, you know, they wanted me to ask you these questions because these were things that really stood out to them about your leadership. So I wanted to ask them to you, and feel free to pass uh, if you'd like, but uh, this is the first question. It's, Sir, you always make an effort to be everywhere as a leader, and you always seem very in tune with the people that you lead. You always seem to know about their life outside of work. And you always make it a priority to celebrate and recognize them. Why are these leadership qualities so important and how do you do it? <laughs> how do I do it? Well, it's funny because for starters, I'm really bad with names and I feel I don't do what you've described uh, nearly as well, either as you've described it or as I think I should. Um, yeah, I, I work hard at names, uh, but it's something I've no- I know is a blind spot for me. and so. I try to put the effort into that. 
But again, I go back to the fact that we're, we're about people. People want and need to feel valued. It's been tough with this pandemic, especially where many are less productive at home um, than they were in the office. And many of them wear that like a millstone around their own necks unnecessarily, absolutely unnecessarily. So your people have to feel valued, but it's got to be genuine. If you say you're going to have an open door policy, you've got to be ready for whatever comes through the door. And you've got to be willing to take the time for whatever comes through the door. And if that means something that you thought was going to take 30 minutes, goes two hours, guess what? Now, not at the expense of other folks waiting, right? There's a fairness piece to this and there's a, there's a business management piece to this, but it's turning and saying, hey, look, I've got a group waiting. We're going to take 30, 45 minutes. You can come back or I'll block some more time, but we're not done this conversation. So if you're gonna do, if you're gonna have an open door policy, you gotta have an open door policy. If you're standing in front of an audience and you ask for questions, you better be ready to answer them and you better be ready to answer them honestly and directly. Now, you might not have all the information. I got it, right? There are times I'll look at, wow, great question. I have absolutely no idea what the answer to that question is. But guess what? I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room. I just need to know where the smartest guy or gal is and I'll go find him or her. We'll get the answer. And then be genuine and be sincere and circle back and make sure it didn't trigger another question. If it's important to the team, it ought to be important to you as a leader, right? We always expect subordinates to say, well, that's important to the boss. Therefore, it should be important to me. It's the downward trickle, the cascading effect of our support forms, right, over the course of a year. But where, rarely do we take a subordinate's support form and incorporate that into ours, right? So there's a grassroots piece to this that says if it's important to the team, if it's important to them, then it ought to be important to us. If it's important to the grad course to go out two days a week and to play ultimate, and we ought to build the schedule that allows them to do that, right? And it's, we can chuckle and say, oh, it's, it's just Frisbee. I love playing ultimate. Not that good, right? But I love playing. It's a great workout, if nothing else, because nothing like watching an old man run around. But at the end of the day, right, if, if that's how they're building teamwork, if that's how they're relieving stress, if that's how they're adding another block of fitness to their day, then it ought to be important to me. Even if it's something I could care less about in, in its most purest form, if it's something that I could care less about, guess what? I better find a way to care about it. Um, and I know. I know, given my rank, that sometimes showing up, I can have a chilling effect. I got it, right? I can be the proverbial fun sponge just by showing up. So you got to know when and where to show up. And there's some art to that. There's some science to that. When, uh, when I was a captain right before the grad course, I was chief of justice out of bliss. And all the captains had a, a big barbecue one night. And they invited me. I was, I was a captain, but I was their boss. So that was eh, a little odd at times, but you knew that. But they invited the SGA and the deputy. Um, and the SGA comes, and he's there for a little while. And, and he knew enough that there was a time that he needed to leave so the captains could have fun. He was not even out the door, and one of the captains yelled, yay, the boss is gone. Now the real fun can begin. <laughs> oh, gosh. Apparently, he went out in the parking lot with his wife and was just crushed. Um, hmm. And so to this day, my wife and I have the conversation, right? Know when it's time to leave and know that it's not personal. Um, 
it just is what it is. So, you know, back to the fundamental question, you can't be everywhere, but you got to be where it's important to your people. And you've got to make that important to you. It's got to be, if, again, I, I really believe that there's this, this bottom-up approach to what matters to the team. Because I can give guidance all day long, but what matters to the team? Do you make it a point to walk around? I mean, is that, is that something that you are conscious of to say, okay, I am either going to schedule this or I am just literally going to go walk around and get a sense of my team? So I do. And, and I got to tell you right now with the pandemic that it's sobering because they mm. still make it a point to walk around the building yeah. but for no other reason than somebody needs to walk around the building because it's empty, <laughs> right? You'll look in a room, you'll, I'll walk through a department and there's nobody there. And there's a little party that dies with that because I'm more introvert than extrovert, mm-hmm. but I like to know what's going on. I like to know uh, no, I don't want to need to be in on all the inside jokes in the department. No, that's not it. Or, you know, I don't need to, um, the G1's wrestling through something tough and they don't need me around. That's fine. Um, but it's good to see people where they are. Mm-hmm. When you see your teammates, where they are and where they work, you get an honest sense. Sometimes it's as simple as a resourcing challenge when you realize and you ask, why are you doing it that way? And they say, well, right? They can't do this or they can't do this. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm they. Hmm. So now I know about it. Let me own it. Right. And so you got to realize that you're they at a certain point in time. And for all of us, that's at a different point in time. For me, walking around is absolutely invaluable. And whether it is the literal walking around of this building or whether it is the proverbial walking around of our JAG Corps, whether that's through Article 6 inspections and travel, whether that is through going to a TDS training event, whatever that forum might be, meeting your people where they are is important. Most people are really proud of where they are and what they do, and they like to share that. Plus, you walk in somebody's office, you learn a lot about the person, right? Somebody's got pictures of their family, artwork from their kids. You learn about where they are in life, and you learn about what's important to them. You walk in somebody's office who's been in the building for a year, doesn't have a single thing on the wall, doesn't have anything on their desk. That's a warning sign to me. Mm. Something's not quite right. Yeah. So for me, it's important to see people where they are. And you learn all kinds of nifty little, little things about folks. So yes, walking around and meeting people in their space is absolutely important to me. Do I do it deliberately? Yes. Do I put it on my calendar? I have at times. Uh, but but as a general rule, I use my white space during the day to get up and do that. Hmm. Email's still going to be there. It'll be there in the evening. I can work on that sitting at home with a laptop on my lap. Um, again, but I'm in a different place in my life. I don't have little kids. I'm not running home to read bedtime stories. Um, so part of it is where are you in life? I want to go back to something you said, sir, about being more introverted. What do you say to the leader out there who is more introverted? Uh, have you had to force yourself to do things that are maybe more uncomfortable in that regard? Or what advice would you give to the leader who's a little more introverted? This goes back to being a beginner. You just got, you got to, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. You got to get up and you got to walk around. I'm not going to lie. I can do that and I can come back to my office and be drained, but it's okay. Right. That's, and that is one of those, 
physiological differences between introverts and extroverts and how one gets charged up from that. But I would, I would struggle to say there's ever a time I didn't get up and walk around, no matter what the formation was, or I didn't come back to my office knowing something that I didn't know when I got up to walk around. And that in and of itself makes it invaluable. It's important because it's about your people. But even from an organization, from a selfish organizational perspective, once you learn something new, you can identify resourcing challenges. You can identify personnel problems. Some of the relationships that you discover that you weren't aware of that are sort of the underbelly of an organization sometime uh, with longstanding personnel. It can be interesting and you see some of that walking around. So what would I say to the person who struggles with that? I would say, I got it, but stand up, put one foot in front of the other, right? And maybe this time you only walk down one hallway. Maybe next time you walk down a different hallway. Make, break it up into manageable size chunks. I always joke with uh, Colonel McConnell up in uh, national security law and Colonel Kennedy up in administrative law that I can never get to their side of the building because I need a camelback and two power bars uh, because there's so many people on a typical day in a normal environment between here and there that I just never get that far. So you got to be deliberate. You got to find the time and place. You, you got to make sure you don't go to the same people all the time because we will gravitate towards those around whom we are most comfortable. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of problems that come from that. And so you do need to be delivered. It's, it's kind of funny sometimes when you walk into a section and somebody looks at you and goes, can I help? You're like, no, nope. <laughs> literally just here to say hi. Yeah. Uh, you throw people for a curveball sometimes and, and that's a healthy thing. I think that's so helpful as a leader to hear you talk about that because it, it one demonstrates to me that that is a priority. Uh, going back to your earlier point about just how people are the first priority of leadership, they're really the only priority because everything flows from those people. Everything you want to accomplish flows from those people. Uh, the culture flows from those people. And I love to just this idea of, of going to just spend time with your people, ask them some questions, get to know them. And also I appreciate to your point about coming back and feeling drained. And I think that highlights how when we're leading, when we're leading to the most effective extent possible, it's going to require a lot of us. It goes back to your motivation for being a leader. It's not about you. It is. It has to be about the people and listening intently and using empathy and all those things. That requires a significant level of energy and focus and presence. And so I guess I would just say, uh, speaking from my own personal experience too, and just hearing and processing what you're saying, sir, that if you feel exhausted, uh, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It probably means you're doing it right. Uh, because leadership can be hard and people and true engagement with people can be, can be a lot. So, all right, sir, next question from uh, one of your uh, former people on your team. Uh, sir, you always seem to command respect of the people on your team without them feeling fear or making them feel inferior. How, did you, how do you manage to strike that balance? And I, I would just add to this question, sir, I think too, uh, this gets at that challenge probably you have as being a general in the army and uh just how, how do you seem to strike this balance between making people f feel like a part of the team and not feel inferior or fearful of you so confession up front right i yell at my computer you've got to have somewhere safe to vent <laughs> that's your outlet um, all your frustration <laughs> and you're me, whipping yeah it's exactly 
exactly it, right? So for me, it's an inanimate object, a yellow monkey computer. Again, it goes back to the discussion about the iPad and you know my my kids saying brace for brace for the storm. Um, so if we I'll hear you, that. if somebody walked past your office and we hear you yelling at nothing, it's everything's okay. Don't don't be alarmed. That is that that means he is in a good, healthy place and he's making the right decision. He needs Do some time. Don't. <laughs> I love um, that. You know, I'll tell you. So I'll I'll use a story here to sort of illustrate um, my philosophy on on fear and dealing with subordinates um, or dealing with folks who are struggling. I watched a one star give a major in Article 15 once. Uh, so there was a senior leader in our army who through that process could have completely put the brakes on that soldier's career impacting not just him and his future, but his family's. And the general found him guilty, but there was nothing, nothing that that general officer could have done to that major that that major hadn't or wouldn't do to himself. And the general knew that. The general knew that that major was going to be harder on himself than he could ever be. General never raised his voice. Almost a two and a half hour long Article 15 session. Never raised his voice. And there were some abject failings on the part of this major. He simply, he, the general, simply used what my wife calls the profoundly disappointed voice. <laughs> And we all kind of know what that sounds like. Mm -hmm. uh, but the message was clear. It was received. And at the end of the day, the individual in the unit moved on. He gave him the opportunity to make a developmental mistake. He didn't tell him that he was a failure. It was about the actions, not the underlying human being himself. Um, and we all make mistakes. But if we want an organization to grow, right, it gets back to our discussion about you're either a growing learning organization or you're dying. But if we want an organization to grow, people have to be allowed to take risks. And as leaders, we've got to underwrite that risk taking. Very few people are going to make the same mistake twice. That's a different discussion. But that's okay. Give people the opportunity to make a mistake. Let them try something new. There's another piece of this, and that is we often think that because we got to a certain position, we've got all the answers. <laughs> and we know the only way to do something, right? So it's the document comes in and I've got a red pen and I just start editing before I read it. Well, I don't. I read it start to finish. I'm going to circle a typo. Yes, I'm going to fix a, a grammatical error. But if I'm changing happy to glad, is it just because I would do it differently or does it achieve what it needs to achieve? And it, reviewing a document's analogous, right, to any of a number of other things. There's more than one way to complete a task. And even though somebody else does it a way we might not, doesn't make it wrong. It just doesn't make it our way. If it's effective and occasionally even efficient and it's lawful and it's moral and it's ethical, then there's nothing wrong with it. And we might learn something from that. And so part of that is a certain degree of humility to say, okay, I don't have all the answers. And the other piece is, right, if if you're constantly getting upset, if you're constantly expressing that frustration and that anger, it's the old adage, if everything's a crisis, then nothing's a crisis. And you really need to save the raised voice for the time you need it. And maybe it's an emergency, or maybe it is a true, what on God's green earth are you possibly thinking kind of moment. But you got to be smart about when you do that. And there are very few times when, again, I go back to the earlier discussion where I say, I really don't think somebody wakes up in the morning 
going to work with the intent of failing mm. or with the intent of sabotaging the organization. Again, they may go and we just might not have trained them well enough for their job. They might be having a bad day because of something else. So before you attack the individual, you can address the problem. You can find out about the individual, figure out what's going on. And again, that's, you do that by walking around, by seeing people in their space. You do that by having a conversation with people. And over time, that trust builds up and people will share more with you. Somebody might come to you ahead of time and just say, sir, I can't do this today. Sir, you, you gave me this and, and I just can't do this today. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for letting me know. What do you need to get to a point where you can? We'll address that. And right now I'll take this task and I'll hand it to somebody else. And so I think you find that balance by erring on the side of it's not intentional when somebody does something wrong. It's not vindictive. There's probably something else going on. And despite all that, they're probably still trying to do their best. So a little reflection, right? Did we train them right? Did we resource them correctly? Did I tell them what the priority was? We had an issue pop up recently and uh, the question became, well, they did what somebody told them was the hot item. And I, I went to the leader and I said, well, how did you prioritize these three tasks? Because the third task was the one that hadn't gotten done. Mm -hmm. And he told me and I said, okay, you exactly followed my prioritization. And if all of your resourcing consumed priority one and two, then if I wanted three done, I owed you more resourcing. Now, we needed to have a conversation, right? That I was made aware more resourcing was required, but didn't do anything wrong. I gave him three priorities. I resourced him for two, and I told him that those two of the three were the most important. He got those two done. I could be upset that three didn't get done, but three was my fault that it didn't get done. But you have to stop and catch your breath for a second. Again, easier said than done, but stop and catch your breath for a second and realize what's really the underlying issue here. Again, rarely it's because somebody is seeking failure as an, as an end state. So I just I have greater faith in humanity than that. That's such an important point. I just hearing you talk through that, uh, it just makes me think of the importance of believing the best in people. <clears throat> Even if you've been burned in the past, I have had uh, some experiences early on where I you know, trusted someone and then I feel like you know, they let me down. But not allowing that one or two bad experiences to, ex to extend that skepticism to all the other people that you lead or that on your team is continuing to, to believe the best. I also love just hearing you reflect through your process of, of ownership, of, of first asking yourself some questions. Okay, this person didn't do something I expected them to do or wanted them to do, but let me first do some kind of introspection and ask my own questions. What did we tell them to do? What were the, how well did I communicate? And I just think that goes back to the importance of ownership as a leader. Sir, well, I, I could talk to you about leadership all day, sir. You, you have so many uh, stories and nuggets and experiences that, that we could pull from, but I know we don't have time. You don't have time for that. And I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I want to follow up, sir, here at the end. I got some kind of lightning round questions for you that I want to throw at you. Feel free to pass on any of these. Some of these might be silly. You don't have to answer them all. But the first question I have for you is what is the top habit or routine that you think has really paid off for you, paid dividends over your career? So top habit, top routine has got to be being a morning person. I got it. part of that may be fundamentally physiological, but for me, and I'll go to the Admiral McRaven book, right? 
You get up, you make your bed, you start the day. For me, it's get up, knock out PT. Whether I'm in an organization that does routine, regular, scheduled PT, or whether I'm in one of those staff jobs or those odd jobs where you're PTing on your own. Because no matter what happens for the entire rest of the day, you've accomplished something. And you've accomplished something that, assuming you don't injure yourself, made you a little better, made you healthier, made you stronger, made you faster. <laughs> Have you always been a morning person or did that, was there a, do you remember like a shift moment where that you started to do that more routinely? No, I have always been a morning person. Uh, my daughter is a morning person. My son is decidedly not. And my wife has um, reluctantly uh, acquiesced over the years. <laughs> what, what time is the ideal time for you to wake up, sir? Zero five. Zero five. The alarm wow. goes off and the body wakes up. At this point in time, at this point in my life, I don't even need an alarm clock anymore unless I'm switching time zones. And that includes the weekends, five o'clock, you're up? Yes, unfortunately. Uh, so it's usually a wake up, okay, roll over. And then about 6.15, um, you know, I'm nudging my wife going, are you ready for coffee? She's like, not yet. She's like, <laughs> but uh... you are, so here we go. That's awesome. I love that. All right, sir. Uh, next question. What would be your top piece of advice for a young leader? Uh, so I'd have to take a line from the uh, blockbuster musical Hamilton. Talk less, listen more. Hmm. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Right? Remember, you're being paid to be a leader. You're being paid to make decisions. That's your job. But you don't have all the information. You don't have all the facts. You've got the knowledge, but you lack the experience that lets you translate knowledge into wisdom. So listen long enough to get those components to bring it all together to make a decision. And then once you make a decision, be humble enough to know and admit when you get it wrong, because we do. And then adjust. It's okay. Better you move out on an azimuth at a cadence and have either the cadence wrong or the azimuth slightly wrong than to sit and do nothing. There is nothing worse than inertia. And so I'm a big believer in make a decision and move out. Just pause first. It's a healthy way to do it. Top two books. What would you say are the top two books that have influenced you over your uh, career? Top two books. So first longstanding favorite, Cormac McCarthy, The Road. I am not typically a fan of fiction and I am less of a fan of dystopian literature. But if you want a great story about a parent's love, I, I think there is no better book. Hmm. A current read right now, Eric Larson's The Vile and the Splendid. Interestingly, Eric Barker, who's written about uh, filtered and unfiltered leaders, which is an interesting discussion in the Army context. He talks about Churchill as the antithesis of a filtered leader. And it's a pretty interesting read so far. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'll put uh, links to that in the, in the show notes at calwalters.me if you all want to take a look at those books. Uh, sir, what would be your top piece of parenting advice? Top piece of parenting advice. Again, patience. Patience. <laughs> Patience, and then a little more patience. Uh, no, I, I would tell you, right, if, when people ask us about our kids sometimes, I say, you know, our, our kids are readers, and we read to our kids. From the earliest age, we would read to them. They would watch us read. And so books became important, and through books being important, knowledge becomes important. Um, now, there's a downside to that, right? My daughter knew when you were skipping pages, 
when you were trying to read that book at bedtime and just wanted to get to bed yourself. <laughs> it's bedtime. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> right? We've been there and you can Oh, totally. It. Totally. Um, we used to joke that uh, our daughter would book yet because you'd, you'd, as soon as you'd sit down, she'd come up with a book and want to be read to. But I think uh, there's probably no greater gift that we could have given our kids beyond a love for and a quest and thirst for knowledge. I love that. What about top marriage or relationship advice, sir? Choose wisely, listen, and communicate often. Now, those are the easy ones, right? I keep telling my wife I plan on taking a gap year when I retire. <laughs> so communicating expectations, however yeah. ludicrous they are, is really important. Yeah. I also joke with my wife a lot that every day is Valentine's Day. Now, that stemmed from my abject failure one year to produce either flowers or a card <laughs> on that I've been there. This day in February that the card industry created <laughs> to take a little bit more of our money. But over the over our marriage, it has really become a mantra for doing little things every day. It is a note left when I'm going TDY with the coffee maker already set up that said, every day is Valentine's Day. It is literally sticking a Valentine's in the mail to her in the middle of May, just to say, thinking of you, every day is Valentine's Day. Now, I might just be digging myself out of a big hole all these years <laughs> later, uh, but I really think for me that that became a way for me to show my appreciation for and love of my wife every day. Even though it's a joke in the phrase, uh, it is me trying to show her how much I care about her um, and how much I value her. Uh, and the last thing I would say is, no one has all the answers. We've talked a little bit about that, but that certainly is true in a marriage. When my wife and I were still dating, we were engaged. She was cooking something one night and I, I looked in and I'm like, hey, if I were you, I would use the wooden spoon. <laughs> yeah. She did not need to be mansplained to by me. Uh, again, it was Joe Burger thinking, well, there's only one way to do this. That's my way. That must be the right way. So in our house, we joke about getting wooden spooned. Um, and that became shorthand in our marriage for, hey, I've got a better idea or a better way to do it than you do. Hmm. And the response, don't wooden spoon me, became, hey, I got this. My wife didn't need to be mansplained to, um, and I didn't need to be um, offering a suggestion when what she was doing was working perfectly fine. So to this day, I keep a, a little, it's about a five-inch long wooden spoon on my nightstand <laughs> next to my reading file, and it just reminds it. me, none of us have all the answers. Um, and a little communication goes a long way in a marriage. Creating that filter in your mind. I don't, I don't need to say that. Not everything I think has to be said. Um, exactly, Cal. <laughs> that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I love that. Sir, I'm curious, as you think about your life, what would you like to be remembered as being for? So I'm going to answer that two ways. First of all, I'll answer it from a professional perspective, and then I'll answer it from perspective of husband, father, citizen. From a professional perspective, uh, what do I want to be remembered for? Absolutely nothing. And I say that with all honesty. Uh, I think everyone of us needs to remember we're all replaceable. I kind of loathe and cringe at discussion of legacies. Because to me, that means the person has lost focus and it's become about them and not the organization. Or it's the people around them talking about them and not the organization. And then your challenges, you're dealing with the cacophony of, of sycophants. Um, and that's quite frankly, just as horrible. If I can walk away and the team seamlessly continues to move forward, uphill, faster, more effectively, and even where appropriate, more efficiently, 
that's success. If that happens and in six months no one is saying, I wish Joe Berger were still here or how would Joe have done this? Then I will have succeeded because for all of us, there will be life after the army. And so from a professional perspective, um, absolutely nothing. As a husband, as a father, as a citizen, I, I just hope I leave my corner of the world, however that's defined, better than I found it. Better than I found it because humans interact more together, um, that we see the collective strength in um, our shared uh, yet diverse backgrounds, uh, that I left the world better because I did tangible things to help improve my community that I gave of, again, our most valuable resource, my time. And whether that's through your church community, through your civic community, whatever that organization or that tool or that venue is, um, that I left my corner of the world a little better, that we gave our children the gift of the thirst of knowledge, the thirst for knowledge, and that we left the world a little better because there's two functional, wonderful adults who can also do the same, and that compounding effect. So I would think two different answers, sort of two different roles and, and two different, but again, it goes back to our discussion about work-life integration. At a certain point in time, we are one in the same. And so there, there's a nuance there that's not lost on me as I, as I try to bifurcate them here at the end. Well, I, I and just reflecting on your answer to legacy and, and your view of legacy, uh, it makes me think of a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with uh, author Greg McEwen, who wrote the book Essentialism. And he talked about how most people can't name their great grandfather's first and last name or their great grandparents first and last name and, and he talks about how at first that might be depressing but then he talks about how one thing you can't underestimate is impact and how impact can last so much longer than your second or third generation into the future and so i just i, I and he, one of his points too is how when you when you kind of start, to, when you stop focusing so much on legacy and you start focusing on impact, it, it, it liberates you from this concept of having to have your name known for generations to come. And it allows you to focus more on, on impact. I think having you kind of add another layer to that for me is, is a powerful way of, in a, in a way, liberating myself from this feeling of having to leave a legacy because that can become, in a, in a lot of ways, very narrow and self-focused. All right, sir, last question I have for you, and this was inspired by uh, my recent obsession with The Last Dance. I'm not sure if you've, if you've watched that, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you if you have a greatest of all time, whether that's uh, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, or someone else that perhaps comes to mind for you. You know, so for me, uh, again, I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this one. I, for me, it's the person who plays truly for love of game, not for glory, not for money. Uh, and I would submit, right, pick the example, but it's the women of the WNBA. They win as the greatest of all time. It's Sue Bird, it's Ella Don, it's Brittany Griner. Less money, less fame, but pick your sport, basketball, soccer, golf. Mm. It's back to that Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena, but it's the woman in the arena. It's who does it because they love to do it not for anything else. And I think if we can find those things in life that we love to do, 
and do them for that reason, it goes back to legacy. Doesn't matter, right? You have time to be impactful. Wow. Uh, any parting words for the audience? And I, I know that we've covered a lot of ground here today, but as we wrap up here, I want to give you the chance to say anything. If you have anything you'd like to, to say to him as we wrap up here. Well, final words, big burden. No, first of all, Cal, I'd say thank you. I'd say thanks for the opportunity because for me, this was a very reflective process. And as we've talked about a couple times in this discussion today, if you're not growing, you're dying. And you can be one or the other. I think that there are very few things in life that are binary. I think that's one of them. And this gave me the opportunity to grow a little. And so I think my parting comment would be, just remember that personal growth, development as a leader, certainly growth as a human being, but in our context, growth, development, evolution as a leader is a journey of every single day of your life, whether you're in uniform or out, because we will all continue to be leaders in one way or another, in some venue, in some fora. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the reminder of the value of that process, that there's got to be something new that we're learning every day to keep making us better. Well, sir, thank you. Uh, thank you for, uh, I've had the opportunity to see you in action over the past year while I spent my year in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm heading on to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina next, and we're excited about that. But I just want to thank you for your leadership. Thank you for the insights you shared with the audience today, to the audience members who tuned in today for our conversation. Thank you so much for, for being here. And as General Berger said, thank you for giving us uh, your most valuable resource today, uh, your time. Sir, I wish you and your loved ones well as you all uh, navigate COVID-19. And again, sir, thank you so much for taking the time. Safe travels to the center of the universe, Cal. <laughs> thank you, sir. Friends, thank you so much for listening today. We covered so much ground in this interview. One of the biggest things I'll take away from this interview and from working with General Berger is his humility and his eagerness to grow and get better. It's so awesome to see someone who is a general in the army and yet still sees every interaction and experience as an opportunity to learn. As you head out, I just want to encourage you to do what General Berger said and be a beginner. Find a way to stretch yourself, try something new, be willing to fail and pursue growth. Go out today, friends, and live an intentional life and inspire someone else to do the same. I'll see you back again in two weeks. Life is short. Let's make it count.